Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephanie Boyce. Stephanie is the 177th, the sixth female, the first black officer holder, the first person of color, and the second in-house solicitor in almost 50 years to become the president of the Law Society of England and Wales. Admitted as a solicitor in 2002, Stephanie specializes in corporate governance, regulatory frameworks, and professional regulation. Stephanie also holds a Masters of Law in Public Law and Global Governance from King's College University London. In addition to this, Stephanie has also recently been appointed to the HMN Treasury and Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy as part of an independent task force designed to boost socio-economic diversity as the senior levels in the UK financial and professional services. If all of that wasn't impressive enough, Stephanie also made the Powerless 100 in 20. 2021, where she was named as one of Britain's most influential black persons. Stephanie's mission is to leave the legal profession more diverse and inclusive than the one she entered. So a very, very warm welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Rob, for that introduction. I'm honoured. So before we dive into all your amazing achievements and legal experiences to date, we do have a customary question icebreaker here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Well, Rob, I have to say I've never seen Suits, so it'd be very difficult for me to rate it. Ask me another (laughs) (laughs) Based on that, we'll start with a zero and we will move on. So let's start at the beginning, Stephanie. Tell us a bit about your family background and and upbringing. Well, absolutely. So uh, my parents, my grandparents uh, came to the United Kingdom from the Caribbean. I say, they say, in search of faith, hope and greater opportunities. So my grandfather was the first to come. Henry uh, was the first to come in um, 1960. Uh, followed by my grandmother in 1962, followed by uh, my mother in 1967. Um, uh, uh, so my uh, maternal grandparents uh, from the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean and uh, my father, who is from the island of Barbados in the Caribbean, came to England in 1964. Um, so <clears throat> as my parents tell me, they had a meeting uh, uh, on, um, uh, uh, in Aylesbury, uh, where I was subsequently born. Um, and I, that's where I grew up, um, you know, in a single parent household on a council estate. Uh, first in my family to go to university. My father finished formal education at the age of 12 in Barbados because my grandmother couldn't afford to send him on to further education at that time because you had to pay for it. Uh, my mother did complete school. Um, but as I say, the first to go to university. Um, so uh, and my grandfather, you know, um, uh, my grandfather was uh, illiterate, um, but his lasting legacy for us was that we were to make something of ourselves. He never told us what, but he said we were to make something of ourselves. Um, and I have held true to that wish uh, to this day. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And what a wonderful, uh, wonderful wish to, to carry through. So you mentioned to make something of yourselves, but what inspired you to pursue a career in the legal industry? What inspired me, looking back, what inspired me? First of all, I grew up in a household, you know, where there were always, you know, grew up to the songs of uh, Bob Marley, you know, uh, uh, singing about, you know, injustices, you know, pricking one's social conscience. 
Um, and I can see domestically and globally, uh, you know, injustices unfolding around the world. Um, and, you know, and then at the age of 12, I went to live in America. Um, and, you know, I saw America would have a lasting impression on me. Um, I would be overwhelmed by the poverty that existed. I would be overwhelmed by people struggling to exercise their legal rights because of their low socioeconomic position or because of the colour of their skin. And I was um, enthused that I wanted to help the voiceless to have their voice heard. And that is what absolutely inspired me. And a day or so after graduating from high school in the United States, I came back to England because I wanted to study in the jurisdiction of England and Wales. Wonderful, wonderful. And you know, considering the Law Society has existed for, I believe, 196 years, and you've become the 177th, the sixth female, the first black officer holder, the first person of colour, and second in-house solicitor from an in-house background. How does that feel? And what exactly does that mean to you? Well, not only what does it mean to me, but what it means to so, well, so many others. I mean, the Law Society was founded in 1825. So in a couple of years' time, we will celebrate, as you uh, mentioned, uh, uh, we will celebrate our 200th year anniversary. Um, we received our Royal Charter in about 1845. So hence why, uh, uh, you know, there's only 177 uh, precedents. And then if you uh, make way for a couple of world wars um, and so forth in, in between. But to have, you know, after four attempts, four attempts at trying to get elected as deputy vice president. And once you get elected as deputy vice president, it's an automatic trajectory that you then go on to become president, unless, of course, you know, other things get in the way. But to be in this space um, and to be the first person of colour, the first black office holder to occupy this space is a remarkable achievement. Um, and to do so during a pandemic, um, you know, with so many different challenges facing uh, the legal sector, but to be able to occupy this space um, and uh, lead my fellow colleagues, some 200,000 solicitors, is an absolute privilege and joy. Absolutely, Stephanie. And we're, we're honoured to have you on the show. And, and we say the Legally Speaking podcast is to educate, entertain and inspired. I am truly inspired by your journey. You mentioned their fourth attempt, you know, so many traits around resilience, not giving up and really, really, you know, not refusing to, to take no for an answer. I, I admire. So with regards to your own career, what made you decide to pursue perhaps the less conventional route as a uh, in-house career? Yeah, so I qualified in 2002 and uh, I was lucky um, in as much that, you know, um, it, the firm that I trained with was less than a 10 minute walk from my home, uh, a local firm in Aylesbury called Howard and James uh, Solicitors. Um, so qualified in 2002. But I then went on to, I wanted to be a litigator, but that was at a time when conveyancing, uh, you know, there was quite a buoyant market around conveyancing. Uh, public funding was starting to bite and therefore, you know, litigation wasn't, um, you know, uh, that there wasn't a lot of work around with, in terms of litigators. So um, I was made redundant twice in as many years. Um, and then in 2004, uh, I was uh, I got my first in-house job with the General Counsel of the Bar um, and so began my in-house career. Um, and, you know, throughout my career, I've worked with Ofsted, the pensions regulator, 
Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, the Accountancy Body, ACCA, um, and a number of others. Um, uh, uh, you know, and latterly in my own consultancy, uh, looking at governance uh, frameworks and transformational change. Wonderful, and you know, again, what a what what an inspiring part of your your career and, and journey you've you, you've been on. And I mentioned in the introduction, um, your career has been particularly diverse. So, what have been just some of the highlights for you? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, against all the odds, qualifying as a solicitor, you know, because of my low socioeconomic background, being told I wouldn't make it as a solicitor, being told I didn't look like a solicitor you know, and so forth. So qualifying as a solicitor as I did. Um, and again, against the odds, four attempts, four times to go on to be successfully elected as a deputy vice president and to become the president of the Law Society of England and Wales. You know, the voice of the profession, um, as I say, is a remarkable space to achieve. Um, so those have been some of the highlights, but the real highlights in doing this job, doing this role, is the fantastic people I get to meet in and in uh, in and outside of the law, um, but also being able to you know share our stories. Somebody said to me the other day, as we as we um, gosh as we climb we lift, or is it as we lift we climb, something like that. But I think the point being around that was the fact that you know as we're able to progress, it's about taking people with you on your journey. Um, and whose life might you change? Who might you inspire just by telling your story, just by being visible? Thank you so much for sharing that, Stephanie. And your story is truly inspiring. You know, four attempts and you finally made it as the, the president of the Law Society. Truly, truly inspirational story. And a lot of our listeners will be inspired by that. But for those less familiar with the role of the president of the Law Society, tell us a little bit more about what the role entails and a day in your life. So uh, a day in my life. Uh, why don't uh, Why don't we start with today? <laughs> so, why not? Uh, so uh, why not? Um, so uh, a day in the life starts with uh, this morning. I think I was up about. And when I say up, what it means is I'm awake. Um, so still in bed, but was up about five five o'clock ish. Um, uh, I start to um, uh, was starting to go through a backlog of uh, emails. Uh, I like to. Uh, uh, listen to a. Um, uh, uh, I listen to the same uh, podcast every single day by a chap called Joel Osteen. Um, and what I like about Joel is he mixes. Uh, he's a bit of a televangelist, but he mixes scripture with positive thinking, um, and he gets me started for the day. Alarm goes off at six o'clock. I'm out of bed at six thirty. And this morning, my first interview was at nine o'clock. So I did an interview earlier this morning. This is my second interview or, or whatever you choose to call it. I then have a series of meetings, uh, a virtual presentation later on this afternoon. And then I will travel to Birmingham where I will attend Birmingham Law Society's presidential dinner. But this, the role is much more than that. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, uh, I come to this role at a time of uh, challenge. Um, unprecedented change. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so whilst, you know, uh, restrictions are easing, what being in a pandemic has meant for some of our members is that they have had to embrace technology very quickly, um, almost overnight, in order to keep working, uh, in order to keep communicating. Um, firms have closed. 
uh, you know, uh, for one reason or the other, um, you know, because of low footfall, because of um, lack of uh, funds and so forth, lack of investment, funds have, uh, firms have closed. Um, but also we have seen the workforce, uh, you know, courts have been closed. So that meant that potentially firms couldn't work. Um, and we've seen the workforce work from home. So lots of challenges, but the role is also an ambassadorial role. Um, so not only do you advocate on behalf of your profession with government ministers that you try and influence and lobby on points of law, uh, the, the Law Society is politically neutral, but also um, you attend lots of dinners, you speak at lots of public engagements. Um, so I think by the time this week finishes, I would have done uh, four, uh, four in-person events um, and, and eaten four dinners. Wow. Wow. So you certainly keep busy and it's such meaningful, impactful work that you are doing for the the legal community. And we'd love to hear more. And you were touching on some points there about your presidential plan. Let's first start off maybe talking a little bit more about the access to justice and technology. Please tell us more about your plans to improve access to justice in England and Wales and how technology can really help this. Well, absolutely. So as, as, as I alluded to before, access to justice and technology, you know, as we emerge from the, this crisis, it's vital that the justice system emerges in a stronger position than before. Um, and we've seen the way that technology has transformed the way, transformed our lives, the way we work in the last 18 months. Um, and there are lessons that we can learn into which the new ways of working with technology should become permanent features. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, and, and of course, there is a bill currently going through uh, uh, Parliament, uh, the Police Crime Sentencing Courts Bill, that looks at remote observations and uh, uh, remote uh, juries within the justice system. Um, the Law Society is not in favour of remote juries. You know, the potential to uh, uh, for juries to be in the, jurors to be in their own home um, raises and flags up a number of concerns for us. Um, but, you know, we have seen that technology can be useful and indeed new and existing technology. Um, and it's provided a glimpse, actually, of how the future will look like um, and how technology will respond to how we provide legal advice, you know, and enable genuine access to advice. So during my time, I'm going to continue the debate on how geographical and digital, digital barriers can be overcome with technology. But we have to be clear, it's not a one size fits all because we still have a massive digital skills gap in this country. Swathes of the country where um, people don't have the infrastructure, the resources, the skills, the know-how, capability to access um, technology. Yes, and I think you know it's a very important point to to highlight. And I know the work that you are doing, and everyone involved in, in the law society are working hard to hopefully try and improve this access over time. So thank you for your continued efforts. And on the another passion, I know you are passionate about making the legal profession much more diverse. Tell us more about this. Well, absolutely. So I have said that, you know, um, you know, it's my mission to leave this profession. And I'm talking about the legal profession, not just the solicitor profession, more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. But I'm clear, Rob, that it's got to be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. So we know that 5% of our colleagues are from an LGBT plus background. 
just under 17% uh, identify as having either a physical uh, disability or a mental uh, disability. Um, you know, 17.5% of our colleagues are from a Black, Asian, minority ethnic background. And just over 52% of practicing uh, uh, colleagues, uh, those with the practicing certificates in the solicitor profession, are female. But those numbers do are not equating to the senior parts of our profession. So whilst we have diversity at entry level, some 63% of our entrants are uh, female, those figures, as I say, do not translate into the senior parts of the profession. And if you in, you know, if you couple all of that uh, with your background, you know, um, uh, your low socioeconomic background, um, then it presents even greater barriers. So we still need to do more to challenge the stereotypes of what a solicitor should sound like, look like, where they should come from. And anyone with the necessary skills, knowledge and commitment to become a solicitor in my view, should be supported, enabled and empowered throughout their career. Because we want to show people or or to show that people from all walks of life and backgrounds can make a valuable contribution in our profession. And our profession must represent the community, the society we are seeking to serve. And now time for a short quiz. Can you guess how many of your prospective clients now expect to work with you online? If you guessed almost four out of five or 79%, you got it right. Want to learn more about where the future of the legal profession is headed? Then leading practice management software provider Clio has just released a resource I think you're all going to love. In their 2021 Legal Trends Report, they compiled data from tens of thousands of legal professionals to chart the major upcoming trends for law firms. The annual Legal Trends Report is released every October, and you can get your copy for free at clio.com forward slash legal trends. That's clio.com forward slash legal trends. Now back to the show. Absolutely, Stephanie, and I, I couldn't agree more and, and really, really well said. Um, you've previously spoken about how the word BAME is unhelpful. Please could you tell our listeners more about how the term creates more challenges than perhaps opportunities? Well, absolutely. You know, if you if, so first of all, you would have noticed that throughout this conversation, I do not use that term. And I have pledged that, um, you know, where it is possible that I will not use uh, the acronym BAME. Um, and I will spell it out in full as I have been doing when I say Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic, uh, Solicitors, Colleagues, or, or so forth. We know that there are disparities within that acronym. So, for instance, if you look at the legal sector as a whole, um, while 17.5% uh, are from a Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic background, we know that 10% are Asian and only 3% are Black, um, and the remainder is um, of different uh, ethnicities. Um, you know, uh, um, so we know there are disparities as to who gets ahead. Um, you know, only 8% of partners in the largest firms of 50 or more partners uh, are from a Black, Asian, minority ethnic background. And that figure has only changed 1% since 2014. Um, and if you broke that figure down even further, again, there would be disparities between Blacks, between Asians and, you know, ethnic minorities even further. So there isn't 
to my mind, um, a, 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 a different term that has, you know, uh, been agreed upon as yet. Um, and I, as I say, have pledged that until there is a term that we are agreed upon, um, I will spell it out in full rather than using the acronym where it is possible and appropriate to do so. And I think that's just testament to your to your leadership and supports your mission and, and what you are trying to to achieve. So thank you so much for, for explaining that and, and giving us some extra context. So following on from that, what would you say are currently the biggest barriers to the legal profession? I think, you know, obviously uh, the, the biggest barriers at the moment are um, in terms of, you know, trying to get into the profession whether that's for costs, whether that's through networks, you know, established networks and so forth. Um, but of course, we have recently on the 1st of September this year seen the introduction of the Solicitor's Qualifying Examination. And what the SQE, as it's more widely known, is set to do is it's set to diversify, you know, open up the profession, remove those artificial barriers to entry and diversify the profession. However, one of the issues that we have is that there has been no firm commitment from either government or major stakeholders as to how individuals will fund uh, 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 the course, the SQE. Um, and that cannot be right because we run the prospect of those who want to pursue a career in law who are not financially abled being financially excluded. Um, and of course, we want to counter that, ensure that everyone has the ability, who wants to study law, has the ability to join this profession and stay in this profession. Um, but we also know, Rob, that, you know, where you come from. So I've long said that law should be taught in schools um, from an access to justice point of view and from a social mobility point of view. And if I pick up on the social mobility point of view to start with, if we start to teach law in schools from a younger age, it starts to demystify some of those myths around, it's an elitist profession, it's not a profession that looks like me, sounds like me, it's not a profession where I belong. But if we start to teach law in schools, it, from a young age, individuals start to think about the stepping stones, the roadmap, what they have to do as they navigate their way through the educational system, as to what they have to do to have a career in law. You know, what uh, 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 even down to what university they should go to, because we know that you know lawyers like to recruit from Russell Brook universities. But we also know that from those networks comes work experience, comes sponsors, mentors. And for most of us, lots of us, including myself, I didn't have access to those networks. I didn't know a solicitor that I could ask a question, you know, or can I have or ask, can I have work experience? until I was second year at university. So it's important that as a career, uh, as a profession, we highlight and advocate to get law added to the national curriculum. Yes, really well said, Stephanie. And I, I absolutely support um, what you are you are suggesting. And let's hope that does happen over time. Now, I know we could talk about the SQE for a whole podcast episode in itself. So do you feel the SQE will improve the legal profession by improving access? Well, as I say, that is the hope. That is the desire. Um, it's early. Obviously, it's too early to tell because, as I say, it only launched on the 1st of September. But if there is no commitment from government, from major stakeholders to fund the SQE, then, as I say, 
we run the potential of financially of on of those who want to pursue a career in law who do not have uh, the resources to do so being financially excluded and that cannot be right now the solicitors regulation authority the sra has committed to monitor to monitoring uh, the sqe um to 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 monitor it over the next coming years um and we will hold the sra to that um and if it's not working if we know that there are bottlenecks then we will work with the sra uh, to ensure uh, that as i say that those individuals who want to pursue a career in law are not financially excluded yes yes let's let let's hope and i love that you are talking around collaboration there and working with the sra to achieve the overarching goal of of greater access to the profession and do you agree that we should encourage aspiring and current practicing lawyers to be more human and allow them to embrace their creativity on top of their academic prowess particularly off the back of the the pandemic well i'm not quite sure what you mean rob by uh, uh more human <laughs> What, what do you mean by that? I think, you know, we're seeing now that a lot of um, lawyers are, are opening up and, you know, showing a little bit more about their, you know, their authentic selves, perhaps on, on online and on social media and perhaps being a, a little bit more relatable um, than perhaps the legal industry um, was previously. Do you do you think that is a, a positive for the, the industry and as a, a real wave of creativity in terms of aspiring lawyers coming in um, with lots of ideas, which potentially could be good for business development um, for firms and client attraction over, over time? Mm. I think that goes back to, you know, what I was saying before about... Um, you know, uh, we've just been through some of the toughest times. Uh, uh, we're still going through some of the toughest times. Um, and I think, you know, a period of reflection. Um, we've all taken the time to reflect. This pandemic has, nobody has escaped, uh, uh, you know, this pandemic. We've all been touched by it in some way. Um, and as I say, I think that's given us the opportunity to reflect. Um, you know, when others tell their story, I've often been asked, why do you tell your story? You know, um, you know, coming from a single parent household and so forth. And I say, well, why not? I'm not embarrassed about my story, about my background. This is my badge. This is who I am. And when you tell your story, somehow it empowers others to tell their story. Um, and by telling our story, we enable others to rise. Um, and that's absolutely what it's about. Um, so... Uh, you know, it's about bringing your true, authentic self to work um, and feeling empowered enough to do so. Here, here, Really well said, Stephanie. And I, I couldn't agree more. And how can people in the legal industry help you with your mission? Well, as I say, you know, uh, when I said about my mission to leave this profession and we each have a role to play, we must all take a look at, you know, the, the, the culture of the organisations we work in. We must look at, you know, uh, uh, um, whether or not there is, you know, work allocation, whether or not, the, you know, the distribution of work is fairly being distributed, how we recruit, where we recruit, the language uh, uh, um, uh, uh, that we place in our adverts on our website. Um, you know, people, if people can see it, they can aspire to be it. Um, and, you know, there is, having done research, the Law Society having done research, we know that if you come from a black Asian minority ethnic background, you will leave the profession, unlikely to leave the profession earlier. 
or to go in-house, as I did in 2004, because potentially we feel that, you know, as I did, that I would have a greater opportunity in respect of career progression, more flexibility. Um, and, you know, so we need to look at the whole holistic picture and what more we can all do. So if we don't have some of those things in our current organisations, in our current businesses, then it's right that, that we ask, why are we not doing this? Um, and that we look, rather than looking in the same place, the same old place for talent, um, at much of the same old, same old, that we start to look in different places. Because talent can be found in every, everywhere. Um, and we know that there is a moral and business imperative for diversity and inclusion. But, but it is not just enough to have a tick box exercise of diversity. Uh, you know, we've made it because we are diverse. We must truly be inclusive because you cannot have diversity without inclusion. Yes, yes, absolutely, Stephanie. And thank you so much for, for, for sharing that. And the Legally Speaking podcast and all of us involved support your mission and we'll do our best with that when partnering with you to help, you know, get this message spread as far as wide as possible. On the last sort of before we wrap up, Stephanie, how do you wish to be remembered following your, your time as the, the Law Society president? I would like to be remembered as somebody who made a difference. You know, uh, I've given the call to action, um, but somebody who made a difference. You know, I used to say before I became president, I used to say that if I changed one person's life, if I inspired one person, I would go quietly. You know, um, but it, as I say, this is a remarkable position to be in. Um, and thanks to, you know, yourselves at Legally uh, uh, Speaking Podcast uh, to share this message far and wide, as you've suggested. Um, because it goes back to, it's about helping others to find their true authentic self, to have their voice heard, um, and to realise that this world is a beautiful place that we all can uh, uh, be in, share in, exist in. And, and, what a, and what a lovely message and way to uh, to wrap up the, the show, Stephanie. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. If people want to, to follow or get in touch with you about anything we have discussed today, what's the best way for them to do that? Feel free to shout out any relevant web links or social medias, and we will also ensure we share these with this episode for you. Absolutely. Well, of course, the Law Society has its website, lawsociety.org.uk where you can find uh, uh, lots of important information and more about the work we do. Um, if you wish to get uh, in, in touch with me directly, uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn um, or you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I believe it's i.stephanieboyce or istephanieboyce1 um, on Twitter. Uh, but either way, if you, if you Google me, you'll find me. Yes, they will, most definitely. Well, thank you so much once again, Stephanie. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. On behalf of all of us at the Legally Speaking podcast, we wish you lots of continued success with your legal career and mission for the Law Society. But from all of us and for now, over and out. This week's review comes from Rose Carrier. 
Rose says, so entertaining and insightful. This podcast is an absolute delight to listen to and is so educating. Rob makes it easy to listen to, which is of essence for someone like me who tends to space off when there's too much information at once and not enough interaction. I've also been able to apply the advice he provides here within my daily life, not only as a law student and legal intern, but also as an aspiring solicitor. Not to mention within my role as head of social media for a small boutique law firm I'm working for. Thank you so, so much, Rob, and keep up all the hard work. Thank you so much, Rose, for your lovely, kind review. We really appreciate it from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast. If you would like a shout out on the show, all you have to do is leave us a rating and review, and we'll ensure we shout you out at some point during season five. 